Another episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast. That's right, coming to you live from the base of La Madre Mountain. I'm Ryan, the original outlaw of the airwaves, bringing you a VIP episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast. Does the music you listen to affect your life? Hmm. Does the music your kids listen to affect your life? Does modern music stunt us? Was the hippie culture a psyop? Music has more of an effect on us than I think we even realize, and it is a sensitive topic to discuss. Few have done the research our guest today has done. Simon Siddle has delved deeply into not only realizing the power that playing sounds has on altering people's moods, but the parallels between the way people treat themselves and the music they listen to. Well, that as well as possibly music and drug use. Are there parallels? Don't fall into the mainstream rut. There is a parallel between IQ and the music you listen to. And this isn't just bigoted information I'm spewing. There's really interesting scientific research and background to all of this. Does classical music make the mind work in a more beautiful way? Well, I don't know. But back in the times when people were listening to classical music, I can tell you that people were a lot more extravagant and colorful. They seemed to have multifaceted characters. They were amazing, amazing people that we make movies about nowadays. Men and women both wore wigs and makeup and used them equally. Not a thing was thought about any of this. And it's, it's interesting that uh, a return to those times might open our eyes a bit as to how the music can educate people. It's uh, modern music that really worries me. Basic, repetitive, and we should be careful about thinking it's just music. I can't wait to talk to Simon, and I can't wait for you to hear what he has to say. Before we do, though, let me just touch base and ask if you've gone to heroparanormal.com. Just check it out. It's a nice little gateway to like go to different other areas whether that be uh, listening to the archive or a particular episode. Uh, check it out. And also, if you have a moment, check out spacewolfresearch.com. It's just a science project done for fun, in the best of intentions, in the worst of areas, and kind of interesting. 
So basically, that's all I've got to say. Let's get to it and talk to the man who knows much more than I could ever know about this. Simon Siddle is not only a musician, he is a music professor, a researcher who is very aware and a wealth of knowledge of the history of music, the consciousness raising techniques involved, and well, he has more or less set a goal for himself to show people that it's time for musicians and listeners alike to take up their shamanic powers and open their minds to the reality that music is magic and has magical qualities, much like frequencies and the like. I can only shed a candle's light on what Simon Siddle is about to blow our minds with. The wealth of information, the research he's done, a music professor unlike any other, here to show us how to empower ourselves, live better lives, help those around us, help our kids, and become more magically empowered. Simon Siddle, welcome yeah. to the Hero Paranormal Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about this amazing thing that you have researched. Uh, you're a music teacher. This unconscious, habitual use of music actually like a magical force. Hello. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a... Uh, uh, Trust me, um, it may sound strange to your audience, but as a music teacher who's been researching altered states of mind and social engineering and conspiracy theory for years, it was a pretty horrifying realization for me too. And Simon, how long do you think the powers that be or whoever it is, the upper classes, have realized that they have some form of control over this music. Well, um, I think that goes back millennia. Um, there are, you know, the well-stated records of the uh, cult of Dionysus back in Hellenic Greece, um, whose entire kind of religious and magical practice was about being able to control the masses through wine, women, song. The, the practice of using music as a, uh, a societal guide, if you like, or a societal uh, hammer and anvil, if you like, well, it's recorded right back to there at the very least. And my personal view is that music in its infancy in human civilization was in its first place an entirely shamanic enterprise. It was there to alter people's minds. Now, back a long time ago when you simply had, you know, 60 people in your Stone Age, um, not a village because they were, they were um, nomads, but, you know, 60 people in your family and one shaman who could sing songs that could change the state of your mind and the entire attitude of your, your village, then you knew who that person was, they lived with you, you had a relationship with them, and in all likelihood, they wished you the best, both physically and spiritually and emotionally. This is not the case anymore. Um, music, despite the fact that it is still capable of shaping people's minds in uh, a very subtle and yet very complete way, is no longer in the hands of people who love you or care for you 
in the slightest. No. And it seems like these these the, the musical undertones are, are far from spiritual, at least the, the music that you hear on mainstream radio. I would call it anti-life most of the time. Um, and the only reason that people do not uh, balk at it as much as I, I, I hope that they would, uh, to be honest, the only reason they don't is because we have been going down a slope with this for a long time and that slope has been in all probability as far as i can see deliberately engineered for us oh yeah wow deliberately engineered that's a powerful statement and a powerful type of magic and this may be one of the most powerful types of magic if it's able to lower a human's vibration is that correct I certainly think that's one thing it can do, yes. I, I think part of its power is the fact that, at least in our society, if you, if you check over in India, for instance, or you check over in Japan or uh, other places, you will find a completely different attitude towards this. But in the West, uh, one of the things we have been programmed into is to simply seeing music as a harmless bit of entertainment. This is how... Most music is presented to us nowadays. The idea that it could be deep and involving art, which obviously it can be, is slowly being edged off the side of the plate, if you like. The, 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 the amount of music which actually feeds the human soul, even though there may be just as much of it being produced nowadays as there used to be, that's a possibility, I honestly don't know. But what I do know is that it's now like trying to find a needle in a haystack because um, what you might call the music industry, but what you might also call the machine or even some form of AI or some form of non-human intelligence, I would lump all four of those things in together and not disclude any possibility. That thing is producing so much automated plastic, soulless music, that it's becoming almost impossible to find the other sort. Wow. Another powerful statement, Simon. Uh, soulless music. And it is. It, it really is. This is... This is... And, and, it, and it's... What's scary is there is a... Well, I guess, kind, kind of a... If you connect the dots... The game plan has been, the writing's on the wall. This happened in the 60s with, uh, here in the United States a bit, with the LSD hippie movement and mind sure. control with the music. Have you looked into yeah. that as well? I have. That was actually part of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I had, in my 30s, already researched a lot of stuff about societal control from various different angles and I also understood that um, there were various philosophies pushing through the lyrical and sort of philosophical content of music that were vying for control of the population but it was when I discovered uh, the work of Mark Devlin on YouTube who produced um, videos and a couple of books called Musical Truth, where he presents evidence for three-letter agencies, you know, the CIA, the FBI, you name it, 
um, becoming fully involved in uh, the music industry back in the middle of the 60s. And I saw just how easy it was with their money and their connections and their psychological insight to simply just walk into a scene and take it over entirely. Because I think um, part of what Mark Devlin talks about is the idea that the original hippie movement before the the CIA got involved was actually predominantly a a passionately anti-war movement with strong political drives inside it. And they decided that that was too dangerous a thing in the U.S. and that they were going to take um, an element of what was at the, 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 the side of it at the time, at the, at the edges of that movement at the time, which was, uh, you know, Californian nudism and uh, rolling in mud and smoking so much dope that you're completely incoherent. They took that little bit of what was going on at the side of it and decided to amplify it out of all proportion until it took over the movement, at which point, because everybody was so spaced out, it was actually quite easy to start injecting all sorts of other nefarious things into that movement by introducing new bands. So, yeah, it was when I discovered all of this through Mark Devlin's work that I began to, well, it became obvious to me, why would it have only started in the middle 60s? Uh, The the recording um, industry has been in existence since the 1920s, at least. and I fully well know that, you know, um, secret societies, especially ones that control um, uh, the, the, our civilization's attitudes and philosophies and even our art movements and such, such like, uh, were fully functional and, and fully manned in the 1920s. I thought, well, surely it's going on there as well. And the last few years, I've been trying to trace it back through time, which is... A very difficult thing to do, um, if not only because nobody talks about it on these terms. You can see the um, the effects of it. You can see the the symptoms of it sometimes going on. But to actually see the workings in the background, well, they're not really recorded, or at least I've never encountered them yet. So I'm working from, yes, I admit it, supposition. I'm working from intuition but i'm also working from the simple question qui bono who actually benefits from the trend that music is taking the trend towards the inane the profane the anti-life that it's you know we, we felt this 20 years ago when people were sort of dodgy about getting uh, militant about saying such a thing, you know, because so many people would say, you're just getting old, granddad, you just can't hack modern pop music kind of thing. I think that's changed now. I think most people are looking at each other and going, yeah, there's demons on the radio, isn't there? Mm-hmm. What's going on? And it's time that we actually did something with this. It's time that both musicians, especially the musicians who have been wrapped up into the industry, uh, both just in work, uh, in, in the aspect of work, but also just in the aspect of their philosophy of how they produce music and why they produce music. And also audiences have to examine 
what they're doing, what they are producing, what they are consuming, and why, if not, uh, if only for the reason that we have to understand that the possibility for poison inside that diet of music is considerably greater than we've uh, been comfortable to believe, if you like. Yes, and it's it's really scary this this power uh, involved with the music and not not falling into the the rut of f- listening to the mainstream because it seems that the parallels between what people listen to and the way they treat themselves are there. They are indeed. I I um, in my teaching I make two comparisons with music consumption. One of them is. Uh, a comparison to the way people use uh, self-administered street drugs or even um, uh, doctors prescribed drugs in order to uh, modulate their emotional and psychic state. And the other illusion I like to make is between uh, people's taste in music and people's taste in food and an understanding that there is nutrition involved so that, you know, you could have a, an endearing love for sugar-frosted donuts. Why not? Uh, but if you let that infantile taste for little else but salt, sugar, and fat actually rule your adult choices, you'll make yourself very ill. And I like to make, I've, well, I started making comparisons between this argument and your, um, your consumption of music a couple of years back. And I've still not come to the bottom of the number of different aspects of this comparison that ring true. We have to learn how to give ourselves a healthy diet. Wow. Yeah, I honestly, I sadly have to be honest and say that, you know, my choice in music, especially when I was an adolescent, was not top shelf menu. It was lower... (laughs) Yeah, it was not the good stuff. But as I've gotten older, like you said, that grandfather effect has pulled in. And I've noticed I'm listening to a lot more classical music most of the time. And it really does affect your mood. Yes. I, I, there is a subtle and complex thing that goes on with music and people's choosing of music. People rarely realize that, or at least they may realize, but they don't become fully conscious, fully cognizant, and therefore able to uh, use that knowledge for to, 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 to finesse what they're doing. They do not understand why they choose the pieces of music that they enjoy listening to a lot of the time. It's a semi or subconscious uh, process of choice. Uh, sometimes you can even feel like you do want to listen to one kind of piece of music. You put it on for 15 seconds, you go, no, I don't want that at all. And you suddenly find something else that you weren't thinking of, but then your heart and your gut says, yeah, that's what I want to hear right now. So there's a demonstration of the fact that it's rarely our, the, 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 the front, the, the, the youngest bit of our prefrontal cortex, our most rational mind that's actually making our choices about music it's something deeper and one of the reasons this is is because one of the powers of music in its in a fairly simple form is its power to impart into us 
an emotion that we were finding difficult to access for ourselves. So this is actually quite possible to do with just a three-minute pop song. Um, to give it its most obvious form, if you're simply feeling a bit run down, a bit tired, a bit stiff, a bit sat in your chair for too long, putting a really rowdy piece of pop music on will um, poke your nervous system into remembering what it's like to be in a high energy state, and you'll find it easier to get back up there. That, that's obvious to everybody, I suppose, but it's not just that sense of um, physical exhaustion that you can solve with a piece of music. There are dozens of emotional states that you can choose to move to a different place with what I refer to as a mono-emotional song, a song that only sticks in one emotion and just sits there until everybody listening to it has vibed with it and come into that emotional state. The trouble with using this music is, this kind of music, is that if we exclusively use that kind of music, or very, very regular to the exclusion of almost all else use that kind of music, and we rely on it to alter our emotional state, well then, what's the difference between that and trying to cheer yourself up with a line of cocaine? Mm -hmm. It's not much different. The only difference is, and it's a very dangerous difference, is that we don't take music seriously enough to think that it can become such a, uh, an addicting uh, thing that we need to rely on just to modulate ourselves and remain in balance. Wow. Yeah, we don't take it seriously at all. And, I mean, we use this to put our children to sleep with lullabies, and mm -hmm. there's an element of magic now inside of it. And I'm glad you mentioned the secret societies that might be using this to uh, alter people's minds. And, and they're using music as a mind-altering technology. Now, it's been mentioned that Capitol Records, there's many rumors of different record companies, both here and in the UK. And I'm sure you've been, I don't want to name names, but the Bullskin House comes to mind and Aleister Crowley's old place of, and Led Zeppelin. Is there any yeah. truth to this? Um, I have heard stories and I'm quite happy to believe them that it is a regular occurrence um, in uh, some of the, the mainstream recording studios that when they are finally made a master of an LP or a song, they take it in, its, in, a, in a, a physical form like a, a CD or a hard disk or something. They take it to a room that is uh, kept aside for doing magical ceremonies and that they actually cast a full-blown spell on this master before it is taken to the, uh, the the reproduction and distribution plant to be turned into millions of copies or something. Now, whether you have any belief that somehow, you know, noughts and ones in a digital recording of something can get affected by such a thing, that's, that's very hard to reach and to understand for a lot of people, and fair enough. But you have to at least understand that uh, recording studios, recording companies, uh, music companies are not in the business of wasting time and money while they're trying to rinse dry musicians and audiences to make a book. 
So why would they uh, do such a thing as actual a master of a, a... Yeah, man, I totally understand. I get it. Mm -hmm. Before they take distribution, and yet they do. They're... Uh, yeah, so... ...known about it, and they've always preferred that we don't know about it. Mm -hmm. That's what makes music such a dangerously powerful thing in our culture, more so than it is in other cultures around the world, because we have been conditioned into uh, not believing that music can have these powerful effects, because we are so unguarded about its capacity to change us, it has free reign over us. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you can hear a song, and it is it, a song can take you to moments. It's like it's almost like a time machine. It can take you to emotions that you didn't expect. Uh, it can take you to uh, places that are hard to explain. And yet, you know, we I guess the trouble with this is as we watch the youth, you know, that they're listening to nursery songs at three, and then they move on to other things. What do we need to watch out for, Simon? If you're, so if you're asking about what can a parent do to help a child actually grow up without being psychically molested by this magic, it's, it's a tricky thing. Um, first of all, that parent has to be self-aware, uh, aware of what music does to themselves so that they can be conversant about that with their children and pass on that skill and that knowledge to their children. Um, and that can take time. Um, that is actually something that I am, well, I, I have written a course to do that for music lovers, to heighten their sensitivity to the emotional and psychic effects of music. Um, I wrote it as a book originally, and I've, re I've decided to, to rejig it into a, a a more interactive internet course, which I'm in the in the process of making at the moment, so that will be available soon to people. But to cut it down to really simple things, mm -hmm. before you ever need to get that complex with it, consider what are you letting your child actually listen to? If If what you're letting your child listen to is music that... Uh, you can see by its presentation, by uh, the channels through which it's come through, by uh, the attitudes within it, that it is music simply there to cause a buzz or to cause offense or to do nothing but make people want to dance and scream and jump about. Anything which is there for the simplest hit in music, the sugar and the salt and the fat and nothing else, while well, you're looking at or you're hearing music there, that is made just to make a book. And the chances of it having a lot of pro-life, pro-consciousness, pro-human attributes inside it is fairly damn low. In order to find music that is actually going to help your child grow and become psychically strong, I would suggest that you go looking for music that A, makes you feel good, makes you feel clever, makes you feel balanced, 
and also music that you can see by its uh, its place in and time in history and in space that it was written by somebody who was trying to write art and not simply trying to get a hit. And while I am a musician steeped in music uh, who can obviously see those things, I don't think it's too difficult for any person to do a little bit of research into musicians and see whether they were people who were just in it for the fame and the money or that they were people who were really deeply involved in music. Because by the time anybody is deeply involved in music, even if they are wrapped up in the music industry, it's hard for the music industry to strip that music back down to something which becomes inhuman again. Use your instinct. Mm-hmm. Wow. Makes perfect sense. And, you know, my I noticed that my two-year-old daughter, after watching Disney for... 20 minutes she'll jump up and down like she just had sugar so it's a very interesting explanation but so true yeah you have to be very uh, this is the thing you have to be very careful not just with you know letting your child go on youtube and download uh music videos or something like that but that kind of commercial music is everywhere now isn't it as soon as we switch on a screen or we walk into a shop or a mall or anything there is that kind of music playing so, yes, it's very difficult to be looking over your child's shoulder the whole time while that's going on. One thing you can do straight away with children, and it's, it's a great thing to do uh, regardless of whether it's about music or not, simply um, help your child become conversant, become aware of what the experience of music has just done to them. So when you see your daughter running around uh, like a firework screaming after listening to 20 minutes of Disney, then just say to her, do you realize that it was the Disney songs that did that to you? Mm. Do you like being in this place? Is it fun being in this place or is it exhausting? And just let her actually think about it for a moment. The more we can help everybody, not just our children, uh, the more we can help everybody become a little bit more aware of what is going on those two or three layers down from our conscious mind when we imbibe music and to just stop for a second and observe ourselves and go well what did it do then rather than just ah oh, that's good i got that music hit but oh, what was it what has changed oh that's curious as soon as we begin to think like that it becomes something much more handleable much more uh in our awareness it's the reason it's so tricky is because especially in the west we are so um driven into uh dealing with our thoughts through our visual cortex so it's very easy to to understand that if you show a child uh, pictures with insanely bright colors in them and all sorts of jagged angles inside the pictures then they will become overstimulated it's easy to understand if you see pictures of horrifying things but it's going to upset a child. Mm. It's not difficult to extend that kind of awareness through to any kind of music. You just have to understand that music does have just as much of an immediate power on that level as any visual art does. And it's, 
it's very interesting that, yeah, everybody kind of knows what you're talking about when you say, I mean, music, you, you can tell it immediately what genre you're listening to. And, you know, I used to listen, it kind of went from, not to bore you, but it kind of went from reggae to rap, and then completely just classical all the time. And, uh, at, it, you know, it, it seemed like it went from down to lower. And then in my opinion, that my life got a ton better when I listened to mostly classical music. But it has been pushed for years and years, this, uh, yeah. this, this industry. What, what could be the motive behind it? <coughs> okay, I've been looking at your podcasts, and you like seriously deep, dark conspiracy, don't you? I do. <laughs> I do, I do. You do, yes. Okay, well, uh, can I ask, do you understand the story of the Archons, as told by the Gnostics? I do. I'm not sure if all of our li- all my listeners do, but I will. And I will. Yeah. I will. Short, I will explain that in as short a manner as I can for you. Um, the Archons are, in the Gnostics' view, it's a you know a religious philosophical story that you can uh, use as a model. That's what I do, or you can take it for reality. That's what John Lamb Lash does, the guy who taught it to me. The Archons are an accident from the creation of the Earth. They are leftover astral energy that did not have any place in the physical realm. And as such, what was created out of this spilt astral energy was some kind of non-organic intelligence that cannot exist on our physical plane and yet can interface with us on the mental plane. To put that in simple English, mm-hmm. they can speak through our minds and they have perfected the art of making those speeches sound like our thoughts. So an archon is uh, a creature that is insanely jealous of our uh, realm and the sheer possibility and beauty and spectacle and uh, everything about our world, yeah? They're jealous of us being here, but they cannot be here with us. So their next best thing that they can do is to use a human being as an avatar. Just like you might play Grand Theft Auto V and you can't actually live in San Andreas but you can, with the help of a computer and a, and, a, and a character on the screen, go and experience lots of things inside San Andreas, yeah? Mm-hmm. The Archons would like to use and have been using humans just like that, because that's what they can do. They plug into our minds and they experience life through us. The thing is, in order to be able to really successfully do this, they have to dehumanize us to some degree. They have to actually switch off the more human and higher reaching and soul um, integrated parts of our minds. They need to dumb us down. They need to turn us into automatons. Now, if that is the case, what would be a better way of doing it than using such an invisibly powerful force as music to slowly dehumanize 
and turn people into robots. You think about what music sounded like in 1780 and how, how human and complex and rich and immediate and ephemeral to the degree that nobody had recordings. You, had to, you, had, you simply had to be there in front of the musician and cherish it the moment it was there and then it was gone again. All of this is gone. In 2020, you can pick up a piece of plastic or even just, you know, connect some electrons through your phone and get this um, artifact, this commodity through your devices, which has been stamped and ironed and straightened out beyond any sense of being human. And the chances are, if it's um, like most music made on computers nowadays, it's been made in practically less time than it takes to actually listen to it with the virtuality of modern um, MIDI uh, digital audio workstations, as they're called, the computers that people write music on nowadays. Mm -hmm. With the way that those things are set out, it is quite possible to write music that lasts an hour in five minutes flat and then put it on a disc and publish it in less time than it would take anybody to even experience it. Now, if that's not removal from the physical plane into the astral plane, I don't know what is. Right. We, we should be careful about thinking it's just music. It can't hurt me. Well, it can heal you and it can hurt you. But what I want people to understand is that the more music seems to come from machines, mm -hmm. the more music is served through machines, it is amplified through machines, it is uh, published to us through machines. Even when you see somebody live nowadays, the chances of you actually hearing the vibrations of their instrument acoustically are pretty low. Most people use power amplification for everything. Every aspect where machines has got in the way between the performer and you is one more level of that connection between human beings um, feeding us, being blocked off. And in, in the element of, in, in, the, in the moment of being blocked off, possibly even being edited so that it is less subtle, so that it is more uniform. Wow. Modern music may be stunting us, it sounds like. I'm absolutely sure it is. Um, if, if music teaches us, uh, it, it's, it's been, let me, let me try and gather my thoughts here. It's been scientifically demonstrated in recent years that music has an effect on infants' capacity for uh, language complexity and therefore capacity for understanding. And it's been demonstrated that by playing certain forms of uh, life-enhancing music, or uh, I don't think that I don't think the studies went on the negative side, but they certainly went on the positive side. It's been demonstrated that even before children can speak, before they've learned to actually form words properly, playing them good music can actually result in a statistically noticeable uh, upping of their capacity to communicate well and to understand well and to philosophize well later in their childhood and perhaps later in life. 
It's absolutely that fa- uh-huh. to do. That has to do with you feeding children increasingly complex uh, music, increasing music with increasingly complex transactions and thematic variations and everything that a language can be as it gets more and more complex. The trouble is, is that we don't do this anymore. If you listen to what uh, 16-year-olds are listening to, it might be um, in its vocabulary filled with things too harsh for two-year-olds to want to listen to in in, in sense of booming and grinding and crashing noises. 16-year-olds might be listening to music that's too harsh for toddlers on that sense. But in the sense of how much complication, how much mind-stimulating complexity and game-playing, if you like, with thematic ideas is going on in 16-year-old music, it's little better than nursery rhymes. And if that's the case, then that is what affecting those 16-year-olds. No wonder they might come out stunted in their communication capacities or even uh, emotionally uh, unable to express themselves or to understand themselves. It's because we are pre-laying down, we are uh, laying down beneath the level of our thought processes these examples through music of just how complex or not our thought processes can be. If all you ever experience is exceedingly simple arguments, exceedingly simple statements, you um, get used to that environment and you copy it. Mm-hmm. That's what's bringing us down from music. It's not that necessarily uh, a lot of music is filled with some kind of sonic evil. No, it's not. There are bits of it, and I think some of us feel it when it comes and when we um, when we hear it. But I don't think that's the big danger here. The big danger here is simply being turned into automatons by music that behaves like an automaton because it was written on a machine. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I, you know, this is an opportunity, I think, out in the open that people have to kind of better themselves, rise up, and it doesn't have to be classical music, but just more complex music. I prefer classical, but I mean, here is an obvious, you see it all the time on TV, people joke around about it, when they show the elites, they always have the classical music in the background as a joke, quote unquote. <laughs> and the joke's on us. The joke is on us. Like it's right there in plain sight, and the joke is on us. It's it's a Can choice. I ask you about your history of, of of your love of classical music. Did you always love it as a child, and it grew more, or did you encounter it once and it hooked you? I encountered Beethoven and it hooked me. I heard Beethoven in an, in, first I couldn't, I couldn't ta- ta- take three seconds, but I, I promised someone that I would listen to an entire song and I was hooked. How old were you when that happened? I was about, wow, I was in my thirties. Right. So there we are. Did you feel like suddenly you were filled with something that you hadn't been filled with before? Passion. Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a humanness to, to, to Beethoven that, uh, well, it's frankly hard to match in a lot of other music, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm trying to point out here is that 
you don't have to uh, deeply educate yourself and lead up to this in some way. It's obvious from your history that it's possible to have lived, uh, to go back to my food analogy, it's possible to have lived a life eating nothing but pink slime chicken nuggets and mashed potato, mm -hmm. and then suddenly be given fruit in your 30s and go, oh my God, what is this? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yeah. You just have to have your ears and your heart and your mind open so that not only will it notice when you find that music which feeds you like that, but you'll also notice the part of yourself which has become habit that would reject that kind of music in a moment because it's some kind of challenge or, you know, you're frightened of it being overly complex. There are so many people who will almost instinctually without a single conscious thought back away from certain kinds of music just from sheer unfamiliarity and yet they're actually bored with their emotional state on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. amen fascinating yes i i can't agree more and it's it's strange how classical music can make the mind work in a more beautiful way and modern music may be stunting us is is it strange? I'm glad we brought up Beethoven because is it strange that IQ tests are, well, you've heard, obviously, I'll let you explain to our listeners about the Mozart effect because I'm sure you know about it. Sure, yeah. The Mozart effect was uh, measured by scientists. That, I mean, I've already explained a little bit of it, but it's dubbed the Mozart effect. It's the, it's the fact that if you play Mozart specifically uh, to uh, children, they will measurably uh, improve in their uh, communication and language skills, their mathematical skills, their spatial reasoning, and even their emotional regulation skills. All of this will go up. Um, this is something that can be measured to some degree in other uh, classical music composers as well. It's just something that because Mozart was such an instinctual genius at getting so many layers of his music to work in the same direction at the same time. It has such a powerful effect where others would only have, uh, you know, a, a, a mild effect. But this was only looking in one direction for one thing. Um, there are even more... Um, fundamental measures of this kind of thing that were done a long time ago that people prefer not to look at because they are very worrying. For instance, it was uh, something well understood by the 70s that you could play in two separate isolated rooms, you could play uh, classical music to one bunch of plants, yes, plants, mm -hmm. and you could play uh, acid metal to another bunch of plants, and guess what happened? Yeah, you might think it's just kind of uh, projective and bigotry to imagine this, but no, it's the truth. The, the plants in the classical music room thrived, and the plants being played acid rock physically grew away and withered. Wow. Wow. Mind-blowing. And this is a very real effect that music has. It's, it's, it's so wild that the, the power is right at our fingertips and the majority of the population just lets it slip right through. 
It does because we've just simply because uh, we we've, we've become so um, used to music as a background thing rather than something that we take right into the foreground of our consciousness. We have background music playing all the time. I personally know people who will never go, never walk around town without headphones on, giving them a quote soundtrack to their life. That's That's what they actually call it. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that um, you almost need an emotional buffer coming from music just to be able to walk around a city and emotionally survive it. That's how they're using it. But they don't actually have the consciousness to see that this is like saying, right, I'm off into a crowd. I need a big fat spliff before I go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a very, you know, music it it is the manipulations real uh the the effect on us biologically is real and music may be the most powerful type of magic that we can easily access on a daily basis i think it is um consider this for an idea if you get a piece of uh very very complex music which gives you a very complex and educational and enlightening journey by listening to it there will uh, there will be a, a solid chance that there is something inside that music a melody that you could pick out and sing for yourself while you're just walking down the street and it's not like when you pick out that melody and sing it to yourself while you're walking down the street that you are merely experiencing one hundredth of that piece of music by doing that to yourself that melody is actually some kind of psychological key back into the experience of a whole piece of music this is one of the powers of music is that it can enfold and compress thoughts and ideas and emotions and even memories and experiences down into tiny little memes that you can carry around in your memory when we become aware of this sort of thing we are going to have a tool which not only serves us instead of uh, us eventually going down the slope into serving it, as it is right now, not only that, but it will be a common magic understood by the populace. That is a great defense against the social engineering mind warp that we find ourselves battered with every day in 2020. Yeah, man, I wish, I, I just think, you know, having found what I consider complex, good quality music in my 30s, I can't even imagine what my life would have been like if I would have been fed this from a very young age. I mean, this is very real. It is very real. And the fact that you discovered it in your 30s quite probably saved you from some kind of psychic burnout or crash. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. And it's it's very interesting that, you know, in schools, you know, people tend to shy away from the, oh, I want to play football. I don't want to play the violin. And yet the, the, this is a very fertile ground for the mind to just blossom instead of get bludgeoned. Well, let me talk. Let me talk quickly about something that happened nearby me. Uh, I live. I live near Bradford in the UK, and there's a uh, school in Bradford that is uh, highly multicultural. 
Um, it has many, many different uh, children from many, many different parts of the world, all sort of first and second generation immigrants, all uh, convening at this school. And if you know anything about schools like that, you know that they're very difficult to try and maintain any kind of ethos in because people's uh, philosophies of life are so convergent when there are so many uh, different peoples all coming into a school together. So it's difficult to find a way of keeping that school pointing forwards. And that school in Bradford was actually failing horribly. Um, scores for, for children's marks in exams and scores for simply uh, you know, behavior and quality of life for the students and things like that were all absolutely dreadful until um, a fellow came along and introduced what's called the Kodai technique back into the school. Now, Zoltan Kodai was a uh, musicologist and composer from the start of the 20th century. And he had a, um, a philosophy of musical pedagogy, meaning there was a manner in which you could use music and movement to help children grow as individuals. And all this school did was to instigate um, a little bit of music and movement back into every day for every student. And a year and a half later, the entire school had been turned round and people were looking forward to going to school and they were getting high marks in exams again. And it was all simply because they had stepped back from this need to shove the STEM subjects, you know, the science and the maths and you name it, um, and actually treat children like human beings that had complex psychic uh, lives going on for themselves that needed help, that needed um, nourishment from activities that they actually saw coming from the adults around them. And as soon as that was re-established in school, the behavior, the uh, quality of the thinking, and just the whole ethos of the school measurably improved to the degree that that teacher... I'm trying to find his name here for a second. Let me just actually give you his yeah. name because he is worth yeah. actually uh, talking about. I'll just pick over my notes here. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Where have I put him? Such mind-blowing information. Man. It's really... No, I've lost that. No, okay, but the point is... That teacher was was um, nominated for a Global Teacher of the Year award for what he did for that school. And all he did was simply reinstate music and dance back into the school. Wow. Unbelievable. It's not just music. I mean, these are these 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 are frequencies the mind is aware of. And I mean, when you really think about it, the ears are like an orifice, just like the mouth or the nose. And it's something that uh, definitely you can, it, it takes something in. It, it, it lets us know what's around us. It does. Um, all I can offer your, uh, your listeners is the idea that we have to remember that we have been programmed into a visual culture. We're all extremely visual creatures nowadays, probably more so now than we ever were 40 years ago, simply because we spend so much time in front of screens taking in information through our eyes. It's not just looking at things anymore, it's actually 
getting to grips with the world constantly through our eyes. Now, we can do the same thing with our ears, but we've just been conditioned out of doing so, so that our ears can be a portal for things to be poured into us subconsciously instead of consciously. And that is what we have to address in ourselves before we can genuinely say that we've become uh, sovereign beings. Because until that point, we are still under some form of black magic. Man. Wow. Such a wealth of information, Simon. I could talk about this for hours and hours, but let, let's cut to the chase. Um, before we go into, uh, I'm going to link your GoFundMe page and, and your website as well. But before we go into that, I'd like to talk about how religion, churches, the proportions, uh, spiritually, this, this, this parallel is there in many different ways for those that don't believe. Can you go into just a quick, uh, bit of that and then into, um, where people can keep up with you? Whoa. Well, okay. Well, you, you, you ask an enormous question at the last moment, uh, the idea of proportion and, you know, sacred spaces and religion and connection with music is, is a very big thing. I will, I will say one thing about that. Mm -hmm. Proportion is a holy thing. We know that from, if you're, if you're energy sensitive at all and you go into a cathedral, which has been built with beautiful proportions, you can feel it around you almost instantaneously. Um, Music, in its old form, was much more involved in those proportions. One of the things that's happened in the last 120 years is that this thing that we, in the West, we all do now, which is to play our music in equal temperament, that is the tuning system that we use, where we subdivide uh, an octave into 12 equal steps, 12 equal notes. This thing, this, this practice that we do, we, we do simply because it's a beautiful convenience. It means that we can fit harmonies together like you can fit Tetris blocks together and they always tessellate. That's the only reason that we do it. But this practice of um, dividing the octave equally by 12, which we have been almost exclusively doing for the last 120 years, is actually banishing from our music the accuracy of what you might call uh, sacred proportions. Sacred proportions do exist. They do have uh, measurable effects on nature. Um, the golden section is the very most obvious one of all of these. But proportions do exist, and in music older, uh, than the 19th, than the end of the 19th century, that if you follow it back, you find that music becomes more and more involved in its tuning systems in pure proportions. And it is this removal of that very subtle background of change that non-equal tunings would give you. It's, you know, as I've, I've been banging on about, it's, it's another element of music that's been ironed flat recently mm -hmm. and because of this it now no longer in most music contains anything that could be called a pure proportion so imagine that cathedral that gives you that buzz when you walk into it 
and move all the walls so that they're four or five percent off from their place and everything's a little wonky and just not as it was, and you find the place won't feel the same anymore. Well, the same is going on in music, and it has been for a long time now. And there is a underground swell of musicians who call themselves Zen harmonists, meaning people who work with harmony that is foreign. That's all that Zen means, yeah, alien. Mm -hmm. What they mean by that is it's not 12-tone equal temperament. We're doing something different. There is a groundswell of it going on in the world at the moment. People using what's called just intonation or 31-tone equal temperament or whatever other experimental and historically well-known tuning systems there are. And it's being kept at bay by the sheer uh, proportion of music which is horribly ironed out into 12-tone equal temperament. And because of this, well, I'm losing my thread slightly here, but what I'm trying to say is I can see the end of a time when those proportions were banished from music. There is music coming, and it is part of my mission that I've accepted for myself in this world mm -hmm. to bring back into our culture holy proportion in music and the truly startling effects that it can have. Wow. It is so amazing. Such an amazing subject. And you're so knowledgeable of it, Simon. Um, where can our listeners uh, go to your GoFundMe? Can you also give us your website and where they can follow you? Okay. Um, I won't send them to my GoFundMe now because that's that's uh, finishing off. But I'm, uh, I have a single page website at the moment, despite everything I'm saying and I sound ready to uh, help <laughs> people with this. Uh, my, my website is actually not quite ready yet. So I have a single page there. Uh, and that, that website is theconsciousmusicschool.com. And if you go there, uh, you can put your name and email in and I will send you an email as soon as the website is more fully functional and I have things to show you. Uh, in the meantime, if you want some um, more understanding of the kinds of things that I teach, you can find the Conscious Music School as a channel on YouTube and on Minds.com and on BitChute. Great stuff. And that's where, that's where I saw you. Great stuff. Amazing. The parallels and everything that you've done. Your research is fascinating. And I, I can't wait to talk to you again, Simon. Thanks so much for coming I, on. It's been a really fun conversation. I'd love to talk to you again very soon. All Thanks, the, Ryan. All the best, my man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you have it, guys. Simon Siddle. Go over and check out what he's got going on. It's absolutely amazing. The research, the familiarity, and the goals that he set himself for himself to help us all realize how important this is. And it's not just music. Support him. And definitely support yourself and your health and your well-being. Until next time. Keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around.
off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like an Evazine. Blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like an Evazine. Blast off, blast off.